So good afternoon. Um, for how many of you guys, this is the first event that you're attending at this conference? Almost, I guess, yeah, almost everybody. All right. Well, here's what I, I'd like to pray a little differently than I would probably. Let's, could we just stand together? And as we stand, let's just, let's just give ourselves to the Holy Spirit this weekend. All right? It's a good way to start. So, Father, we just come before you right now, Lord. Um, Father, you drew us here. Father, we believe that you have a word for us. Father, I just lift up each and every person that's in this room uh, right now, including myself. And, Lord, we just say to you, God, right now, Lord, we give you our bodies. Lord, we present them as living sacrifices. And specifically, Lord, we want to give you our ears. We want to give you our ears to hear your word, God. And we just dedicate ourselves to listen to that. We give you our eyes, God, that you would just, Lord, fill them with, um, with just a vision for your majesty and your glory. And, Father, for the things that, that you're going to call us to do to see your glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Father, we give you our hearts. Lord, we give you the innermost parts of us, God, that, Father, you would just create a fire in us, Lord, for you and a passion for you and the people that you love so deeply in our generation. And, Father, of course, we give you our hands and our feet. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would use this time, God, as just a, a launching off time, God, that, uh, that you would teach us and train us and speak to us in this way, God, and just begin help. Lord, just we, we're, we're coming before you, God, to say our one passion and desire, Lord, is to bring you glory through every breath that you've given us, Lord, and through all of our actions. And so, God, we just commit ourselves to you and this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You may be seated, and uh, my name is Steve Noblet. I'm supposed to say that because that's the signal that they're going to now record things. And it also means that I'm now um, accountable for everything I have to say because it's all on record. But uh, um, I'm excited that you guys chose to be in this workshop, and you've been in here long enough to see that you're actually in the right workshop, so... Uh, I'm assuming that either all the other workshops are full already, or you decided to start with the best at the, in the beginning. So, um, so this is on uh, models of domestic medical missions. I'm the executive director for an organization called CCHF, or Christian Community Health Fellowship. And if you talk with people at this conference, or hear anybody at this conference talk about uh, domestic medical missions, in some way or another, they're kind of related to us. They're, we have some sort of connection with them. Uh, that's our, our primary focus. Uh, but I want to say to you what we, just, what, I, what we said earlier today to a group of church leaders that were here for a pre-conference event, and that is that the only people in the entire world that think in terms of international and domestic missions are Americans. God doesn't think that way. God doesn't think that... Like America's home and everything else is overseas, right? So God has one mission, one mission, and that is it's a global mission. Uh, he is, as surely as he lives, he's committed to see his glory fill the whole earth as water covers the sea. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And y'all are in, in this place today and in this city this week because you're already, you already believe that. You're, you're committed to that kind of thing. So when we talk about domestic missions, what we're trying to do is trying to break down this concept of there's overseas and there's domestic and the things are completely different. There's one global mission, and we'll get into a few things on that 
in just a minute. The goals for this breakout session uh, are listed here. We, are, we want to look at a couple of different ways that guys are doing domestic medical missions here in the, in the States. And one of the things that I've learned, I, it's, it's a great joy of mine to uh, have an opportunity to visit probably 75 or more uh, Christian health clinics uh, every year. And one of the things that I know is that uh, um, every single one of them is different. But, but they can be sort of grouped down into uh, two or three different models. And uh, we want to take a look at some of those and what some of the pros and cons are of those. We're going to hopefully uh, look at some best practices. And we're, uh, we have a uh, – I'm, I'm sort of changing up my uh, – what I would planned to say today because we have an opportunity to hear directly from um, – though she comes in late uh, – one of the best practices that we know of uh, – in, this, in the states, it's over in Washington State, so we'll hear from them in just a few minutes. Okay, there are some terms that you need to know as we go through some of these things. How many of you guys know what an FQHC is? All right, somebody tell me what FQHC stands for. Federally Qualified Health Center, okay? And then there's this funky one right on our cheek there called a look-alike which is actually a technical legal term for a type of health center. Uh, and it, does anybody know what a lookalike is? Do you, it looks exactly like a federally qualified health center, except it doesn't have that same designation. And there's a little difference in the way that they get funded uh, and in some of the benefits that they have, but they basically they're, they're, they're sort of like FQHC wannabes, only I always add my own designation. There's FQHCs, lookalikes, and wannabes. MUA, what is an MUA? Anybody know what an MUA is? What does that stand for? Medically underserved area, right. And again, that's a federal designation of a geographic territory, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, Three R's, anyone want to take a stab at that? We're in the wrong conference for the three R's. So three R's are principles of Christian community development. And it's, um, uh, there are three R's that you, you hear a lot of. There's a group called um, uh, Christian Community Development Association, CCDA. And we do a lot of things with them because they're very involved with the type of work that we do. We're sort of the medical end of them. We're sort of the community development end of GMHC or CMDA and some of those groups. But the three R's are, are principles that, that we really believe are biblical for Christian community development, and they deal with relocation, uh, which is a common missionary concept that never gets applied to domestic because we really like our nice homes in the suburbs. But, um, but relocation, redistribution, which is a very, you know, what does that mean? It means we're all communists, right? Redistribution. It means that somehow or another there has to be a flow of resources that's at least equal. You can't have a flow of resources from impoverished communities to communities of resource. It, we need to get resources back into under-resourced communities. And then reconciliation, which is the most important R and really the number one R, which means that nothing real or lasting happens unless, there, unless reconciliation is at the heart of it. And Reconciliation has to happen first and foremost between an individual and God, right? But it, as that happens, it begins to happen laterally as well between individuals and one another. 
And then reconciliation, I believe, has to happen uh, within systems. Jesus taught us to pray a certain way, didn't he? He said, I want you to pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when he did that, he was basically saying God is not a God of double standards. God doesn't have one standard that's acceptable for heaven and a whole other lower standard that's acceptable for the, for the earth. It's good enough down here. Jesus said the, God's heart, and this is how I want you to pray, is that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if I look at systems... If I look at the way I treat my wife, if it's not going to fly in heaven, it's not going to fly in my home. I have to reconcile the difference there, right? So the same thing's true in the way that we treat patients. It's the same way. It's the same thing's true in the way that, in the principles and the values that we see in the medical system that belongs to us here in the United States, and that we're called as ambassadors um, into that system. So. Uh, those are all important things. And, of course, CCHF stands for Christian Community Health Fellowship, which is a um, subversive group of kingdom radicals that are committed to swim against the stream, live sacrificially in order to see Jesus expressed through health care, and follow him anywhere and everywhere at the cost of our own lives if necessary. So why domestic medical missions? Well, um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but uh, this is a map of medically underserved areas in the United States. And if there's color on that map, if you can't see it very clearly, if there's color on that map, that has been recognized by the Department of Health and Human Services as a medically underserved area. And what you're seeing there really is just where the entire county is medically underserved. In every major city, even if you're, uh, let's see, like parts of Chicago and things like that may not have color on them here, but in every major medical, in every major city, there are pockets that are medically, that are considered and and, uh, uh, determined to be medically underserved. So a medically underserved area is an area that is defined by too many poor people, too many old people, too high an infant mortality rate, and not enough physicians or not enough health providers, not enough people that can write a prescription. So those are medically underserved areas. Um, There's a whole bunch of those around the country. We'll get to that in just a second. This is a a map of health professional shortage areas. Again, these are areas that have been uh, studied and identified uh, and recognized by the Department of Health and Human Services as being health professional shortage areas. And a health professional shortage area is an area where there is less than one physician for every 2,000 people, less than one primary care physician for every 2,000 adults. Okay, so um, how many of you guys are in practice now? Okay, so a bunch of you, right? And how realistically could you can you handle 2,000 people as and be a medical home to those people? I mean. Most doctors that I talk to say realistically to provide really quality care, especially for people with complex problems, maybe 1,000 to 1,200 people roughly. So the federal government said, well, you know, let's just pretend every, every doctor is superhuman, and so if it's 2,000, they can all handle 2,000. So, uh, so if there's, again, color on this map, it's a health professional shortage area. And so there's a gigantic need. There's a gigantic mission field 
in our nation. Um, can you guess where health professional shortage areas exist and medically underserved areas exist? Mostly in poor communities, right? And Jesus gave us sort of a, the pattern of his ministry when he gives his inaugural sermon as he's launching into ministry. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 61, which says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Very first thing out of his mouth, if you want to know what I'm about, says Jesus, I'm going to preach good news to the poor. And what does that look like? Well, it includes recovery of sight to the blind and uh, release to the oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. There's health care already lined up in there. And everything that Jesus did... He always had healing as a significant part of his ministry. And when he commissioned us, he commissioned us to preach and heal, right? Healing is a part of what we're supposed to be about. And I understand that treatment and healing are two different things, right? But I had cancer back in the early 90s, and a mentor of mine um, knew that I was reading every faith book I could get my hands on and all the Kenneth Hagin stuff and putting them on my heads and rubbing them in oil, everything I can do, you know. And, and my spiritual mentor came to me, a uh, father in the faith, and he just said, anyone that's on the side of healing is on the side of God. Do what the doctors tell you to do. So I'm standing here today, hallelujah, uh, in complete remission or totally healed, to use Christian language. So we're called to serve the poor. All right, now I just showed you these two maps with all the color on the maps, the green one for medically underserved area and the, the red and pink one for um, health professional shortage areas. There are 17,000 medically underserved areas in the United States. 17,000. 96 million Americans live in medically underserved areas. 96 million. These are from uh, the uh, uh, George Washington University School of Public Health figures. 53 million of those people are chronically uninsured. Another 25 million are underinsured. So they've got insurance, but they can't afford to go to the doctor. And these are the people that are competing for too few doctors in their area. So there's this gigantic um, need in our, in our nation, and especially among in these medically underserved and HIPSA shortage areas. Johns Hopkins School of Public Health did a study back in, and released a study back in 2006 on spirituality and religiosity and health and Healthcare. Has anyone here ever read that study or seen a presentation on that study? If you want it and you'll send me an email, I'll send you a PowerPoint copy of this study. It's fascinating. So this is Johns Hopkins. This is not Cedarville University. You know, it's not a Christian school. And these are just some highlights of this, all right? 58% of the people that they surveyed said that religion was important to them. Okay, that's all, just 58%. 94% of the same people surveyed said that spiritual health and physical health are equally important. So there's a gap there, right? 76% of the same group of people said that when they're in pain or when they're sick, they pray. So these are not religious people, okay? 72% said, I really think that my physician should talk to me about faith and my spiritual health. 72% of people surveyed when only 58% considered themselves religious. 
There are people, the people that you see, patients in our nation, we're not talking about people in India or Africa that are just desperate for everything. We're talking about people in the United States. They want you to talk to them about spiritual issues. They understand that spiritual health is related to physical health. The Gallup poll people put out a survey every year, and every year it's the same, they get the same answers on the most trusted people uh, in, that, that we come in contact with in our lives every, every day. Okay, and the top five most trusted people in their and 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 this is across the board every year. Four of the top five are medical professionals. Can you, anyone want to take a guess who number one is? It's your nurse. Yeah. Nurses are the most trusted. Okay, physicians number two, pharmacist number three. Usually, an accountant is number four, and then the dentist. Which I'm just really impressed they made it in the top 15, actually, because they always tell me it's not going to hurt. But the, yeah, so where's pastor? Where's pastor in that list? It's usually somewhere around number 10 or 12, just above or just below policeman. Congressman is like number 20 on the list, okay? So there's a bridge of trust. There's a huge need. I'm painting this picture for you that there's a harvest that is ripe to be had among the most responsive, hungriest people who have needs that the church is not reaching, and you guys have that opportunity. So what's working in closed countries needs to happen in our inner cities and our rural communities here in America. And Jesus said this, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. It doesn't say or, and it doesn't say then. So again, this is a this is a we need to be thinking about missions where we live. And I could go on and on and on about this, but I want to get to this here. So there's a lot of people. In fact, we're really beginning to see over the last four or five years what we are deeming the early stages of a movement of God's people who are choosing daily to bring healing to marginalized people, vulnerable communities in the United States, all across the country. And, um, and I want to share some of the models of, what the, of what's going on here. So we're going to focus on really two models. Most, most of the, of, of the uh, 300 or so clinics around the country that are distinctively Christian in their mission and that are focused on caring for the poor, fall into really one of two categories. Of the 300 or so that we know about, probably 290 of them are either one or the other of these two categories. So there's a few other ways to skin the cat. And there's, You guys are smart, creative people that, have, that are well-educated and you have the Holy Spirit. Between those two things, I know that God's going to use you to figure out what needs to happen in your community. But most of the t- time, you're going to fall into one of these two categories. The first one is what we call free clinics, and they're the most common. There are more free clinics out there than there are anything else in the sort of Christian community doing health care. Again, of the 300 or so that we know about around the country, there's probably 240 of those are free clinics or charitable clinics. And uh, when when we talk about free clinics... um, Maybe a great question to ask would be, why 
Wait a minute, I've gone. Somehow or another, the timing on this thing is... Well, all right. I'll get us here. There we go. All right, first question. Why free? Most free clinics exist as free clinics for one of two reasons. Either they have a personal conviction that health care should be free. And so they, they just have this negative idea that anyone should be charged for health care, health care should be free, and, they want, and, the, and therefore they want it to be free. Or they serve a population that is just not able to give anything towards their, the cost of their health care. I mean, a typical population of that would, like that would be homeless. You know, the, almost every clinic that I know of that deals with homeless people is a free clinic. And frankly, they're the best and most sustainable way to serve the homeless because of that. Free clinics are heavily dependent upon the charitable community. And in the Christian world, we, they're heavily dependent upon the church. Um, but they also get a lot of money from private founders, uh, uh, funders and foundations, a lot of which are Christian. Um, they're heavily dependent on volunteers, which is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Most free clinics are very small. Um, they have a very small permanent medical staff. Most of them are, you know, they, most of them, frankly, hire nice suburban ladies from the suburbs that know how to throw great parties and hold golf tournaments and, uh, and things like that. And because of that, sometimes they're looked down on by the established medical community. Uh, but they deserve great respect because they're doing phenomenal work in a, lo- uh, in a lot of cases anyway. They tend to be run by uh, administrators who are more about fundraising than about medicine. So y'all want to all work at a free clinic? All right, that doesn't sound very exciting. What I'm telling you is they really need help. They need people that understand medicine and that can help them connect with the medical community to make it happen. Um, and, of course, there's, they're not all, you know, I'm, I'm lumping all free clinics into this one big gigantic uh, pool, and that's not very fair because there are, there are different, uh, there's some that are very well established, and we're going to hear from one in just a second. Pros of free clinics. Things that they do really, really well is they engage a broader community. Um, you know, a private practice doc doesn't really need to have the church supporting them. But free clinics are dependent on their existence from the church and from uh, donors and from people in the community. And frankly, the community should share in the responsibility of caring for our poorest neighbors. And so they do a really good job of that. Um, a lot of them are very, very high profile in their communities, uh, even though when you take a look at the overall medical impact that they're making, it's a lot smaller than, say, some other organizations that are providing more medical care but, don't, but are not engaging the community. And so that's an important uh, positive, I think. They meet a critical need in a very highly vulnerable population, and they promote creative stewardship. i got to tell you, when I sit down with free clinic people, they're the most creative people you can imagine. And just in one area, if you take a look at how they handle prescription drugs and how they get, um, how they're able to meet the needs of their clients through prescription drugs and things, there's entire programs set up that, frankly, we could do entire workshops just on some of the creative ways that those things are happening. So, 
Um, you know, there's not a real good manual to follow, and they're just having to make it work in each, uh, in each of their communities. All right, here's some drawbacks. They tend to be very small. Um, I know a lot of free clinics that see less than 1,000 patient visits in a year. And then when you take a look at what the need is in that community, you know, basically they're doing everything they can, but they're, what they're doing is not rooted or based on the need that they're trying to meet. It's based on the resource and supply they've been able to, to gather. I'll say this. I think that there are some free clinics that have a something is better than nothing approach, and I don't think that that, was, I don't think that, that is honoring of the kingdom of God. Uh, something is not always better than nothing. And when you become, there have been Christian clinics that I have visited. I've been really disappointed. I thought, I would not want to come here to see the doctor, and I would not want my mother to come here to see the doctor. And if I wouldn't do that, if I wouldn't want my children to come to, to this clinic, I certainly wouldn't want anybody else to come to this clinic. And so there's some, there are some clinics out there that, frankly, they need to just beef it up. They need to get a vision. They need to do something uh, to stop promoting a two-tier health system. Uh, this is a frightening statistic. 50% of free clinics stop being Christian within five years. And the reason why is because they get desperate for funds and they end up taking private funds that put restrictions on what they can do in the area of faith. Now, here's a, when I, when I came on to the CCHF four years ago, I had several people from charitable clinics tell me, you're going to find that, you know, government funded clinics are not free to share their faith, pray with patients, to be truly Christian, and that you're going to want to see that you know charitable clinics are a lot more capable of that. And the truth is that in our country to date, for the last 40 years, the federal government has been much more open to Christians expressing faith in federally funded clinics than private funders have been for charitable clinics to, to do that. Private money has put more restrictions on faith than federal money has. It could change tomorrow. It would be a surprise, but it could change tomorrow. And then there's a stigma associated with free health care. Um, there are studies that show that people that receive free health care are not as compliant. Patients are not as compliant as patients that have to pay a little something for it. Um, Free clinics, because of the, frankly, just because of the need that they have, uh, that they meet, and because they're heavily dependent on volunteers, don't always have the same, almost never have the same doctor seeing the same patient on a regular basis. And so they tend to be, uh, there tends to be a lack in continuity of care, and they tend to only be acute care. So that's not, again, the case in all of them, but quite a few of them are like that. And then, like we said, patient compliance is is oftentimes lower. So there's a, there's a trend among free clinics to move away from being free and to begin to charge patients a little something uh, or require something from them. And that creates its own set of problems. I was talking with uh, a brother here that's a, that's a physician, and he's like, we take Medicaid patients, and then we see poor patients, and if I bill them differently than in the Medicaid audit, it's causing a problem for me. How do we overcome that problem? And my short answer to him was, let me introduce you to somebody that might know the answer to that, because I don't. But um, it, So charitable clinics that charge for care 
have their own set of issues that they have to deal with, um, but that seems to be a movement. In fact, a lot of the free clinic associations around the country are changing their name to charitable clinic associations in order to be able to sort of embrace the move that's going on there. Uh, but very similar to free clinics, they're largely funded by donations. Um, I've seen clinics that ask patients for as much as $65 a visit, as little as 10 um, Most of them will see a patient. I mean, you can't see a patient for $65 a visit. It's, it's not really. You can't do that. So it's still, it still has to be supported by the community or by the church. Um, I don't know why, but... Charitable clinics, I, I don't know, but one or two really large free clinics in the United States. There's a few. Not very many, though. When I say really large, I'm saying people that are seeing more than 20,000 patient visits annually. Uh, but among charitable clinics, people that are almost free or severely discounted, there's, there's quite a few, actually, that, um, that are seeing 25 to 30,000 patient visits annually. Um, so they tend to have a little bit larger impact in, in some cases, or at least seem to be able to. And it's not because they're getting a lot of money from their patients. Actually, they don't charge money for their, from their patients to fund the clinic. They charge money from their patients to have their patients invest in their health care. Uh, and a lot of them have moved from acute care to chronic care and managed care. Now, um, I wanted to, I had, I had planned to talk a little bit about uh, one of the best practices that we know in charitable clinic world uh, that's in Nashville, Tennessee. But about an hour ago, I bumped into some of my friends from Vancouver, Washington, who run a terrific best practice free clinic. And um, Diane, would you mind sharing just a, a little bit about New Heights Clinic, maybe how y'all got started, and how you guys, y- y'all have been around for a long time, all right, you're well established, you're not acute care only, you have an established medical staff, you've overcome a lot of the drawbacks that a lot of free clinics that I've outlined have. I'd like for you to share just a little bit about that, if you would. This is Diane Dunlap from Vancouver, Washington. Yeah. Or, there you go. Okay. Hi. So I just found out about this a few minutes ago. (laughs) But I'm going to try to um, summarize a little bit about um, what Steve was just uh, telling you. New Heights Clinic started about 16, 15 years ago. And uh, Dr. Steve Baker is our medical director. He was finishing residency in Olympia. And really, he and his wife wanted to go overseas to be a missionary doctor and nurse uh, overseas but um, needed to get rid of some debt, which you probably all can relate to. And um, he called our pastor. And the church that I happen to go to and am privileged to be a part of, their mission statement is to make more and better disciples. And their method for doing that is to love people in a language they can understand. And healthcare is a language people can understand. So when Dr. Baker approached the pastor and the elder staff there, and said, hey, could we just try something, a little domestic clinic. The staff was very excited about the idea. Our pastor and elders also believe that our budget should reflect our mission statement. So we should see a fairly large portion of our budget going to mission outreach. 
So they knew that to start a medical clinic, and the other thing we did is a little bit of community research to see that there was already in the community a, um, an acute care uh, walk-in clinic that had been started. So, um, the, and Dr. Baker's medical practice is family medicine, so his bent is towards primary care. So what we saw is that uh, primary care was what was needed. And this was 15 years ago, and most, as was already said, most clinics in the uh, United States were starting as acute care. You know, it's a little uh, less expensive to be able to just provide care uh, for an acute need. But when you get into primary care, you're starting to look at, okay, how do I get lab? How do I get x-ray? How do I get all that stuff? And there's just dollar figures all around all that stuff. Plus, you need a physician that will follow these patients and be able to see them back, as Steve was saying, for continuity. So, uh, but we were, uh, I think, naive enough <laughs> to believe that a little bucket of vital sign equipment and a couple of prescription pads and uh, a couple of donated exam tables and some Sunday school classrooms could get us started. And what we realized is that people were so desperate for medical care that they were really willing to be come, and, come and be seen in that area, in that in, those, uh, con in that context. So uh, over a period of about five years, we gradually moved into another site, which the church was growing at that time also, and they had built us some uh, small exam rooms in an office building uh, uh, right next door to the church. So we moved into a site that started to look more like a medical facility. We actually had an exam rooms, and we had a waiting room, a reception area, and we could store our charts, and we had a room we could put pharmaceutical medications in and store them categorically and not throw them into Rubbermaid containers and pack them away each night. So continued to grow. We got to a place about six years into our practice where we realized now we really need to start looking at permanent staff. So um, at that time we started praying. And honestly, I'm not trying to be super spiritual or anything, but we serve a great God who is not handicapped in any way by uh, finances or, you know, big barriers like how are we ever going to pay a doctor's salary. But he brought to us a little Asian woman who was, uh, we were thinking, maybe we could get a mid-level provider, a retired doctor. We could maybe have him for two days a week. We could afford that. He brought us a woman whose specialty is internal medicine, and she had her whole life uh, wanted to go back to China to serve, but um, that door just never had opened. So she came to us originally and said, I'd like to come and work at your clinic. Would you let me come? And are you kidding? Of course we can. By this time, we had acquired a full building, a house, and we had a bunch of volunteers renovating the house and turning it into our full-time clinic. Um, so uh, Dr. Elaine went out to find a job, and nobody wanted her part-time, which was what her idea was. She came back and presented to us what it would cost to support her. It was amazing what she was willing to uh, live on. And so we brought on a full-time doctor, and we moved into a house that we could have full-time, uh, a full-time clinic in. Our, our um, desire is to be a place that people can serve, so our... Uh, our desire is, is many people that we can bring in to serve in Christ's name we want to do. So if we can take a job and divide it up into four and have four people come and serve, we want to do that. But our clinic is run by uh, really uh, five paid, six paid staff members. Uh, we, this year we added a fellow, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Gilbert, and um, so our second doctor on staff. Um, but uh, I have an assistant. I'm the clinic manager. We have two directors, a dental director and a medical director who are part-time and 206 volunteers that make this work. So 
So we're blessed with people from a wide range of uh, skill levels in healthcare, and they come to us and we uh, use volunteers to schedule all of our patients. They are all the receptionists for the clinic. Uh, we have volunteers that run our echoes and do our uh, EKGs, and the hospital has supported us with lab work, and all of this is a miracle because we, none of us get any credit for making it happen. Really, we've seen God do an amazing uh, job of pulling together uh, our clinic. The other neat thing about our clinic is we want to be a place for training. So we have a huge desire to have uh, young students in healthcare. Um, we have five nursing schools that feed students into us. We have a couple, uh, a local medical school, Oregon Health Sciences, that feeds students into us. Plus, we have a program called Summer Medical Institute, where students come from anywhere in the country and can come and serve uh, for an internship during the summer, or actually, for that, that matter, now a year-round uh, four-week internship. Um, so we desire to be influencing healthcare, and if these people go out and now they're uh, serving in hospitals, but understand again how they could bring their faith into uh, and integrate it with their service in whatever place they are, that's what we want to see happen. I'll shut up. Hey, thank you. Y'all thank her, please. Not bad for totally impromptu, walking in, being introduced to speak. <laughs> So, yeah, so I've visited New Heights, and I'm going to tell you, I, I have mad respect for these guys. These are, this is a, what a best practice in free clinic looks like. So permanent staff, you know, I mean, the thing about it is that they start small. And, and I don't want to discourage anybody from starting a free clinic, and I don't want to discourage anybody from helping in a free clinic. What I want to do is I want to, I want to show you what some of this uh, – caps are in people's faith. And I, and I think that that's what we need to do is we need to provoke uh, in a really positive, loving, compassionate way people that are in this type of work to be like Diane and her crew that think bigger and think, no, nope, we're going we're gonna, to, we want to provide continuity of care. We want to overcome all the other obstacles that we see in this type of world. Uh, by the way, they have a booth in the exhibit hall up here on the second floor, and there's an entire row of domestic medical missions folks that meet these models. On the, and I'm telling you, it's, the party is on the second floor on this end of the thing, right at the end of this hall. So you should come over uh, during the conference. Okay, the other model that I want to look at real quick is, uh, com is the community health clinic model. And this is not a... Um, a, a a distinctively Christian model, it's, it's FQHCs. It's, it's, it's a model that was started after Medicaid was introduced in the 60s, and it was uh, something that was promoted by the federal government, which, which realized that uh, Medicaid reimbursements are not going to fix the problem. Um, for one reason, for one thing, doctor's offices are not in communities where, they, where the need is the greatest. So I live in Memphis, Tennessee, and in Memphis, Tennessee, we have this really nice suburb that I used to live in called Germantown, and Germantown has about 30,000 people in it, and it's got 105 doctors in Germantown, all right? And four and a half miles from Germantown is a community called Fraser, which is a uh, working class uh, community where the average household income is less than $26,000 a year for the household. Uh, a lot of Section 8 houses and things like that. 30,000 people live there, too, and it has 
until three years ago or until four years ago, it had two doctors. So two doctors for 30,000 people in this community and 105 doctors for 30,000 people in this community. Can you guess which community is well insured? Okay. So uh, the federal government began to uh, uh, start these things called 330 clinics or community health centers where they were going to help fund um, organizations to move into under-resourced communities and medically underserved communities. It's a, a fee-for-service-based funding, so uh, they don't have a development director usually. If they do, it's a sort of an add-on position as opposed to sort of a fem, fem, foundational position or cor- cornerstone phys, uh, position like it would be for a charitable clinic. Um, so basically the doctor goes in every day, and as many patients as he sees, somebody's going to pay somebody for seeing those patients. A lot of them are Medicaid, uh, but some of them are private insurance and that kind of thing. They have to look at a mix of payers. So um, with, community health in, with community health clinics, they see basically three types of patients. They see patients that are on Medicaid. They see patients that are on um, that are that are, have private insurance. That's usually their smallest percentage. And then they see patients that are politely called self-pay or no-pay, uninsured pay, patients. And um, and so they have to look. It's a Rob Peter to pay Paul system, where uh, if they can get enhanced Medicaid reimbursements, they can get enough money to see the Medicaid patients. And if they see five Medicaid patients, they can afford to see two uninsured patients as well. So they look at payer mix a lot. Um, uh, community health clinics uh, are, by definition, required to provide a breadth of services like dental and. Um, uh, behavioral health and other uh, specialties and things like that. They can do it contractually. It doesn't all have to be something that they do directly. And then um, these are what FQHCs or lookalikes are called. These are they're called community health centers. Um, so here's what it takes to be a community health center. You must be located in a medically underserved area and a health professional shortage area. I mean, the physical address has to be in that. Uh, you must have limited service overlap with other community health centers. So if you wanted to start a community health center in your town and there were four FQHCs and they all had overlapping circles, you're not going to be able to, you're probably not going to be approved. Unless you are reaching into an unusual uh, service population, a medically underserved population like a group of refugees that have language barriers for the other things. Uh, they must be a nonprofit, and it must be governed by a board with 51% of the board being patients or people who live in the service area. And so all of a sudden, every Christian in the room goes, that's, that's the rub, isn't it? The government wants us to turn our governance over to a bunch of non-Christians. Actually, there's nothing in there that says you can't require every one of the people on your board to sign a statement of faith. In fact... One of the clinics that, uh, one of the best practice clinics that, that I want to talk about in just a second is Lawndale Christian Health Center in Chicago, and they require that, that their board be made up, a certain percentage of their board be made up of members of Lawndale Community Church, but it's a community church. So you can put stipulations on that. You can make the requirements stronger. You can't make them less strong than the government wants you to. There's re- accounting requirements that, frankly, are just best practice accounting requirements We've talked about breadth of services, and the application process is very competitive. So 
they'll put out a, uh, once a year, the federal government will put out a, sometimes it's not even once a year, uh, they'll put out an RFP for, for applications to become an FQHC, and there'll be 1,200 people apply for 150 positions. And so they weight the applications, and they, you, you, they score those applications, and then decide who's going to get it and who doesn't. Here's the advantages of this type of model of a clinic, is that you get enhanced Medicaid reimbursement rates. Instead of getting paid $35 to $60 for, for a Medicaid patient, so for, to see a Medicaid patient, if you're a private practice doc, you'll get paid somewhere between $135 and $160, depending on your state and what you um, negotiate with them. So it makes it sustainable. You can actually run a business at the rates that they, that they give you. You get 340B drug pricing, which basically means that you can buy pharmaceutical products for the same price that the VA does. Um, so that's those two things you get, whether you're a federally qualified health center or a lookalike. And I'll tell you the difference in just a second. That's funky. So um, I didn't do that on my computer here. So FTCA coverage. I don't know if y'all know what FTCA coverage is, but it's uh, it's basically the uh, coverage that the federal government gives to providers that work in these community health centers, so that you don't have to. I don't want to say this. This is maybe not exactly accurate, but it eliminates the need for malpractice insurance. Okay, all of a sudden OB is doable. Um, and then the big thing is you get a big pot of money every year through an annual grant. So uh, a typical community health center will get 625 to $675,000 for their site to use to help, under, to help them underwrite the cost of providing care to uninsured people and to expand breadth of services. So the big question is, what are you afraid of with this? And as Christians, you know, the big question is, if we're federally funded, can we really be Christian? Can we pray with our patients? What about sharing our faith? Um, can, you know, can we hire Christians? Can we discriminate in that way? And the answer is no, you cannot discriminate in hiring on the basis of faith. But you can on the basis of skill set. And if spiritual care is a part of your mission, you can ask your people applying for the job, how would you handle, how are you going to personally handle spiritual care? And if they don't give you the answer that you like or that fits with the culture of your organization, you can hire somebody that does give you the right answer. So there's ways around this. And I'm telling you, right now there's about between 50 and 60 distinctively Christian, federally qualified health centers around the country. Now, I don't know how much money there is in Washington. I don't think there's much, and it doesn't look like it's going to be flowing like we were led to believe about a year and a half ago for this kind of thing. But um, I don't think Christians should be afraid of this model. It's not going to always be the best model for what you have. Okay. So what are the boundaries? Well, the boundaries are you cannot proselytize. Well, I thought you said we could share our faith. You can share your faith. You can't proselytize. You have to understand what the government's definition of proselytize is. Proselytize means you cannot require someone to sit through a gospel presentation before they see a doctor. 
on the, that, that seeing a doctor and providing care to them is conditioned on whether or not they convert to your religion. That's proselytization. But you can share your faith. My wife works for an FQHC as an HIV case manager under a Ryan White grant. So it's a, she's like federally funded twice, right? She's never seen a patient she didn't pray for every single time. She's led in the last, she has about 120 patients in her caseload. She's led 18 of them to Christ in the last 12 to 18 months. And these are people that are never going to shatter the door of a church. And, um, and she's staying in the boundaries, you know. So there's a, there's a way around all this stuff. Let me, let me jump to the end of this real quick and, um, and then encourage you to drop by later for, for questions, okay? As you are trying to figure out what, what you should do in your community, the first question I think you need to ask is, what is your mission? I know, or, I know organizations whose mission has nothing to do with caring for the poor. It has everything to do with reconnecting the church with its biblical mandate to heal to heal our bodies and souls, okay? And, and so they don't need to be an FQHC. That their mission statement, they're going to care for the poor and they're going to do all that. It's secondary for them. There's, there's a great um, clinic uh, that's probably represented here at the conference, and I won't tell you their name right now, but the, the mission statement of that clinic is to train physicians to bring spiritual care and to, and to, and to develop spiritual conversations with patients in their own exam rooms. And they use a free clinic model as a classroom to, to, to accomplish that. And they're, they're going to be better as a free clinic than as a, than as a community health center. So you need to know what your mission is. You need, to, you need to know what kind of vision you have. If your vision is, you know, to sort of salve your conscience and do, a little, do some nice, nice things for poor people in your community, then you're not going to be a community health center. And you're probably going to be a really small free clinic. Um, here's the big question. Do you have a champion? You cannot start a health center without a doctor. MD or DO at the end of your name means that you've got the secret handshake. You've got the master key. You can unlock resources. You can. I'm just telling you, you've got to have a doctor. So I know a lot of clinics start without doctors. I know almost none of them that make it. They, you have to have a doctor. So people ask me, where do I find a doctor? I had a guy tell me, he said, he said, how important is that? And I was like, you, you got to have a doctor. You can't see patients without a doctor. You have to have a doctor. You can't have, it can't just be a nurse. Praise God for nurses, alright? But that can't be how you build your clinic. You've got to have a doctor. And he says, well, I can buy a doctor. I got enough money. I can, I can raise money. I can buy a doctor. To which we said, until you find the doctor that, like they had at New Heights, that was willing to live sacrificially, you got the wrong guy. You know, you got to have a doctor that's willing to come and see patients if you can't pay them. You got to find that champion. You got to have a champion of the cause. So CCHF has helped a lot of people over 30 something years start clinics. And here's what we know. You're five times more likely to succeed. You have a five-year mortality rate, positive mortality rate, if you have a doctor as your champion. So five times more likely to succeed if you have a doctor. You've got to have that champion. Are you connected with the recognized body of Christ? My fancy word for the church, okay? 
whether it's a local church or the church that God recognizes in that city, but you need to be connected with the body of Christ or you're going to get lost in a social issue and you're going to lose your vision and your mission. You need spiritual covering. You need to take a holistic approach and uh, just don't really have time to talk about that right now. But um, And then finally, do you understand the needs in your community? This is really important. Um, or are you just doing something that you think is a nice thing to do? You need to understand the need. You need to spend some time, back up, make a st- do a study. Partner with the School of Public Health in your area um, or with the Primary Care Association or the Free Clinic Association in your area. You need to know where your ministry is going to be located. New Heights could not become a community health center if they wanted to because their church gave them a building. It makes sense for them to use their building. Their building's on a bus route that people can get to, and it's across the street from a medically underserved area. I mean, it's about, what, 300 yards or so from a medically underserved area, but it's not technically in a medically underserved area. We're fighting the fight with them to try to get them approved as a National Health Service Corps site. Um, but that's a, that's, a, that's a challenge for them. And you need to know where your ministry is going to be located and whether your efforts are going to add or shift resources. This is a big deal. So uh, somebody asked me about a clinic that they had heard about recently. And, and I told them, I said, you know, I don't know much about that clinic, but what I do know is they started across the street from a really good clinic already. And they did it because they wanted to own something. All right? Now, I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's unfair of me to say. But, but I see way too many Christian groups that d- will not collaborate with other resources in the community. Or in, in Memphis, Tennessee, where I'm from, there was a really awesome, big charitable clinic. They have to raise $14 million a year. Another clinic got started, Rick Donlan's clinic was getting started, and early on in its, in their, in, uh, uh, as Rick Donlan's clinic was getting started, the head of the Christian clinic down the street that has to raise $14 million a year came to Rick Donlan's CEO and said, would you all consider doing something besides being a charitable clinic? Because there's just not that much money in Memphis, Tennessee, which is the poorest city in the United States, by the way. There's just not that much money. And if you guys, if y'all are raising money to do something in, at your place that's cutting our ability to raise money to continue the work we've started, you have not added resources. You've just shifted them around. So be careful and think about that. Um, know your strengths and weaknesses, what your gift is, and get my phone number. My email address, yeah. Uh, you know what? I didn't put it on. Uh, I didn't put it on this, but but I've got I've got a business card I'll give you, and I, I, my booth is where the party is at the on the second floor, this end. So I'm sorry we went a little bit long, but um, I hope this was helpful. And like I said, we will be glad to help you any way we can. CCHF is a is a body of Christ ministry. We don't charge for anything. We connect you with people that have, like Diane, that knows the way around. So come by our booth this week and have a great week. Thank you so much for sticking around, and I'll see you later. Adios. Good to see you, man. Well, they're some time. Yeah.